Good morning. Kind of a lethargic group this morning. Could we try that once more? All right. Now that is better. You gotta wait for a while to go to sleep. I haven't even gotten started yet. This is the third lesson in our study of the book of Hebrews. And this is titled, The Sun is Higher Than the Angels. Years ago, more than I care to recall, I took a class at seminary taught by Dr. S. Lewis Johnson. And it was uh, titled, uh, "The Paul's Use of the Old Testament. Uh, Dr. Johnson, as you know, was a, was a very, very fine golfer and probably could have been a pro. And he uh, took a week off of, of teaching, um, it, uh, that class included, to go and speak at, at a uh, golf tournament to a number of believers there. And um, so he was giving us our assignments and whatever. And, and uh, Dr. Johnson wasn't exactly a knee slapper when it came to humor, but I always found it, it was just kind of my calling in life to see if I could nudge him and, and get a little giggle. And and so he turned around to start writing on the on the on the chalkboard and and I said to him, Dr. Johnson, why don't you use the uh the old Billy Sunday approach? And title your first message, Where Will You Be at the Last Hole? And old Dr. Johnson's shoulders started going like this. I knew I had yes, I had scored. He turned around and he said, uh, if you think of any more before I leave, give me a call. <laughs> In that class, we were given assignments, and and basically we were to write a paper on one instance of the New Testament, Paul's use in the New Testament, of an Old Testament text. If you uh, carried that standard into this message, this would be a doctoral dissertation, <laughs> because we have seven Old Testament texts that are that are referred to here. And so I think you'll understand that we won't be able to do the kind of in-depth inquiry that uh, that it could deserve and, and uh, might rightfully deserve, but we'll take a little higher level look at it and see what we can learn from it. Let's look first of all at what I call the wide-angle view of Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 2.18. In other words, the first two chapters of Hebrews. The Son of God and the Sons of God, and I'm using that term, Sons of God, as an expression equivalent to angels, or if you want, Jesus and the angels. That's the subject, really, all the way through chapters 1 and 2. In verses 1 through 14, the author tells us that God has spoken finally and fully in his Son, and that this Son is higher than the angels. In chapter 2, Verses 1 through 4, he then moves to exhortation and says to us, because of who the Son is, we had better listen to what he says very carefully. And then in the remainder of chapter 5, he talks about the Son, but now as the one who is lower than the angels or was lower than the angels for a period of time, that is, his incarnation, so that he could become uh, identified with mankind and be the Savior of lost sinners. Now, let's take a little bit more of a zoom lens look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. You see in verses 1 and the first part of chapter 2 that, that the author has said, God has spoken 
finally and fully through his son. He's spoken in many times, in many ways, through the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, in the person of Jesus Christ, he has spoken finally and fully. And the question is, well, who is this son that we should listen to what he says? What makes him authoritative? And last week we talked about these seven descriptions of our Lord Jesus. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of the universe. He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the manifestation of the Father's essence, the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. He is the one who accomplished the cleansing for sins and then has become seated at the right hand of the Father. That's a fairly good set of qualifications, I think, to be uh, the Son of God and to be the Messiah. But I want you to notice that then he comes to the conclusion in verse 4, and because we, we saw that verses 1 through 4 are all one sentence in the original text, where he is leading us is to this conclusion. Jesus is vastly superior to the angels. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is so. But at this moment in time, what the author wants to do is to demonstrate why that is so from the Old Testament. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that he's talked about God revealing himself in various ways in the Old Testament. Now he reveals himself in the Son. Now he's going to take seven texts to match seven characteristics, I think, at least stylistically so. He's going to take seven texts and say, this is what the Old Testament teaches. So the Old Testament revelation and the New Testament revelation in Jesus are not somehow contradictory, they are complementary. But the vast, vastly superior revelation is that which is consummated in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this lesson is going to focus on those sevenfold uh, citations from the Old Testament. So make, uh, let me make a couple of observations. We saw that there were seven descriptions given in in verses 2 and 3. Now we are complementing, the author is complementing that or buttressing that with these citations that come from the Old Testament. One commentator calls this stringing, and and he's saying that, that, that oftentimes not only New Testament writers but others would take and they would string a line of texts together so that they would make their point so well documented, everybody had to say, yep, that's the way it is. And and you could see that, for example, if you look in Romans chapter 3. Remember where Paul is demonstrating the universal sinfulness of men? And he goes, he goes in verses 10 through 18, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. And you're just on and on. All these Old Testament citations, you end up getting to the end of that and you say, you know what? We're all filthy, rotten sinners. That's the point. And it's stringing. That happens later in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 of the book of Romans as well. Secondly, most of the citations that we find in Hebrews, and I think you could generally say that's often the case in the rest of the New Testament, will come from the Septuagint. Now, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in some ways one might call it, I hope I'm not being rude, the NIV of the Old Testament, it's a little uh, looser in in some ways and some points than, than, say, a tight translation like the New American Standard. And so you may find that the wording, when you look at a quotation and it says, this is coming from Psalm such and such, and you go back and look and say, well, how come mine doesn't read like that does? Because you're not reading out of the Septuagint, and he was. 
So sometimes you'll see some variations. By the way, sometimes the New Testament writers will modify or correct a translation if they don't think that it is accurate enough. Uh, thirdly, most citations in this text come from the Psalms, to be specific, five out of seven. So the Psalms are heavily uh, used in the documentation of this. And uh, number four, points are supported by double citation. And you'll see that generally uh, there are three, uh, uh, two texts in, in those three sections. And the last one you would say, well, that's only Psalm 110. Well, some commentators will point out that the beginning part and the end part are, are like brackets that are placed there to tell us that this is all one unit structurally. And so that would fit the style that we would expect as well in that final point. Now the author's assumptions. As, as the author looks back and uses the Old Testament, what assumptions are being made? There are people who would look at this, especially liberal scholars, and they would say, you know what? New Testament writers, just like Christians today, just make the Bible say whatever they want it to. They just play fast and loose. Now that's not true. And, and we need to understand the assumptions that underpin the use of scripture by the authors. And that is, when the author speaks, he speaks of the scripture as that which is inspired, authoritative, and inerrant. He is not looking at the text as something which needs to be modified because it wasn't done right. Or to put it shortly, it is the word of God. I pointed out last week, I think it was, or the week before, that one of the characteristics of Hebrews is when an Old Testament text is cited, with only one little exception, I think in chapter 4, the author is not named. And it isn't like you would say as you read in Psalm such and such or as you read and David says or Moses said this or whatever. You don't find that. And it appears that the reason for that is not that the author had a bad memory. I could identify with that. But that the author is trying to say to us, it is really God who is speaking. So he doesn't emphasize the earthly uh, uh, author because it is God who has spoken at various times in various ways, and, and that is underscored by the omission of references to the author in the quotation. There is the assumption that there was more in the Old Testament than even the human authors realized. What they say is absolutely true, but I'm, I'm turning your attention primarily to that a text in First Peter chapter 1, where it says, Concerning these things, the prophets of old searched their scriptures. <laughs> they looked at these things, and in effect they said, What in the world do I mean by this? It's over their head. And then he goes on to say, It was revealed to them that the fulfillment of all these things is not in their day, it's in our day. And so these things are to be understood only in the light of the latter days, the coming of our Lord Jesus, and all of those things. And now we, we look back and we say, aha. <laughs> but the original author does not understand all that is implied in what they say. There is more there than meets the eye. And Hebrews helps us to see what some of that is. It is a consistent revelation. That is, it is one book. And it leads us to Christ, and I'll take you one step further. Christ is the interpretive key. Christ is the interpretive key that makes all of it come together. Do you remember in uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 
where Paul is talking about the blinding of the, of the eyes of the Israelites. There's a veil over their eyes. What is it that opens their eyes? What is the interpretive key that finally allows unbelieving Jews to say, ah, oh, it is Christ. He is the interpretive key. And once you come to him, you find the key that unlocks uh, much of the mystery of the Old Testament. Okay, how the New Testament authors used the Old Testament. Boy, this is, this could be a, a multiple set of sermons in and of itself because this is a vast topic, but I'm going to try to make it really simple, if not for you, for me. You remember that Don Curtis, in a very excellent message in Hebrews, talked about the different ways in which uh, the Jews handled the Old Testament texts. And that, that uh, is, is very, very fine and, and well worth your attention. But I, I'm going to simplify it down to one word, correspondence. When the New Testament writers used the Old Testament, they saw in some level a correspondence between what you found in the Old and what you are seeing in the New, and that relationship then is somehow developed as the author cites that scripture. Now, I'm going to give you a few illustrations, and I, I may not give you all of these, but just for example, this past week, we were studying in our, uh, in a Bible study, uh, 1 Samuel. And, and we were beginning at chapter 1 and talking about, uh, Hannah and, and her inability to, to bear a child, and then how God, uh, uh promised the child and gave birth uh, to Samuel and her prayer of thanksgiving and so on. And, and you cannot help as you look at those first two or three chapters of 1 Samuel and then you go to the first two or three chapters of the Gospel of Luke, you're saying, isn't this somehow strangely familiar? Haven't I been here before? You know, it's like meeting somebody and you know that face looks so familiar. You can't quite put a name on it, but you know that you know them. Somewhere you've met before. Well, this is where you've met. In this instance, it's in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. So you have Hannah's plight. Now, Hannah's plight is that of an older, a mature woman. I'm not sure that she's exactly beyond the age like, like Sarah may have been, but she is a mature woman who, whose womb has been closed for years. So her promise, or her problem is, is not being able to bear a child because of her womb being closed. There is a there is a, a correspondence with Mary, and it isn't about how old she is. It, it isn't about her biological ability to produce offspring. It is that she can't have a child because she's not married. She has no husband. So you really have two women who can't have children for different reasons, but you see what I'm saying? There's a correspondence of sorts. Now, when you see the child born, Samuel born, and you see Hannah's prayer, you, you see this uh, in the context of, of her rival who was mocking her and so on. And so Hannah's talking about, in effect, God shutting the mouths of those who are her adversaries, of lifting up those out of the dust and putting down those who are proud and arrogant. And then she ends by talking about God's king. 
which is very interesting because Israel doesn't have a king yet. And, of course, Samuel will be the one who will designate uh, uh, Saul and then, uh, Sam, and then David as the king. But there's that correspondence between their prayers. So when Mary prays in Luke chapter 1, she prays some of those same words, only she now sees, or at least the Spirit of God, is seeing the relevance of that situation in a broader way so that when Messiah comes, he will lift up the downtrodden and and he will put down the haughty and he will bring about salvation and indeed he will be the king who will bring about justice. So there's this similarity and that's why uh, you can have the borrowing, if you would, of Old Testament language to describe a New Testament experience. Remember, too, that that statement in chapter 2, uh, verse 26, and again in chapter 3, verse 19, sort of, where it talks about Samuel grew and, and, and grew in favor and statue and favor with men and so on. And then you come to Luke and you see our Lord Jesus and you see almost an identical statement. Are those not markers which say to us, Hello, <laughs> do you see a correspondence here? We should. We should. Now, it seems to me that the writer to the Hebrews is saying, when I talk about Melchizedek and I begin to talk about the implications of this, the lights ought to be coming on. But he says, the lights are all out up there. The lights are out. This is late chapter 5. Paraphrase, I get it. But late chapter 5, the lights are out. I want to talk about this, but I can't because you're not getting it. Only this time he says, I'm going to plow through because it's time for you guys to grow up and start chewing on this meat and seeing what the real uh, underlying truths are. Okay, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is, is a psalm written by David and it describes his experience and it obviously must be, be a description that is somewhat poetically dramatized. I'm avoiding the word exaggerated, but it, but you know what I'm saying. It's poetically kind of blown out. Whether David had exactly that phenomena or not, uh, you know, who is to say? But what we see is the description that David makes of his own circumstances, once viewed in the light of the, of the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden we look back and say, this is more about Jesus than about David. Is it not? Now, it is about David, but there's something more, something beyond that, that the New Testament eye can see that would not necessarily be evident to the Old Testament eye. Isaiah 7.14, you have a scenario where Ahaz is told to ask for a sign. And he, sounding somewhat pious, says, oh, no, I wouldn't ask a sign for God. Well, when God tells you to ask for one, you really ought to ask. And, and so then God says, I'm giving you a sign anyway. And, and he talks about a, a woman who is going to conceive and bear a child and, and certain things are going to happen before this child knows the left hand from the right. Now, when we look at that, we see that in addition to what it is talking about in that time frame, there is something vastly greater going on. And so the New Testament writers can say of Mary, here is a virgin who is conceived. This is the big sign. That was a little sign. This is the big one. New Testament looks back and sees much more. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Out of Egypt I have called my son. I don't think anybody would have looked at that text in, through Old Testament eyes and said, Oh, well, Jesus is going to go down to Egypt and, and he's going to come back up out of Egypt. But that's exactly what Matthew 
does. Because he sees the correspondence. Just as the nation Israel, uh, who God called his son, let's call it the little son, God's little son went into Egypt and God brought them up out of Egypt into the land of promise. Now the ultimate son who fulfills everything that God has expected uh, of that, of his, of his son, that Israel failed to do. Now when Christ comes up out of Egypt, he can say, oh, I see. He, like Israel, there is this parallel. He, in relationship to Israel, has done something that now makes sense. Now, I get those three texts in 1 Corinthians just to show you how Paul pulls things out of the hat that we wouldn't normally have expected. He's talking about immorality taking place in the church. And then he says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And the whole imagery there draws now on the sacrifice of the Passover, which introduces the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that commences with going through the house and getting all of the leaven out. And he said, if Christ has been sacrificed, it's time to clean house. And uh, this person who claims to be a brother in the faith, who's been living in immorality, you better deal with him. Don't muzzle the ox uh, that, that treads the corn, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's talking about paying preachers at that point, and he basically says, here's an Old Testament text. God isn't really ultimately concerned about the ox, is he? In other words, is that as far as it goes? <laughs> no, it teaches us a truth that extends beyond it. So there was a correspondence between those two. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, where he's talking about Israel uh, coming out through the sea, uh, baptized unto Moses by the cloud and the sea and so on. And then all of a sudden he says they all drank from that spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, it just about knocked my hat off. I mean, I'm just saying, whoa. And you think back now in that whole story about the water that comes out of the rock, and doesn't that just boggle your mind? So all I'm saying is the New Testament writers saw a lot more in the Old Testament than we did, and, and they take the trouble and the time to point those things out as they utilize the Old Testament text. A couple of cautions. In that deeper, if you want to call it that, or more hidden meaning that the New Testament writers may see, it in no way nullifies the literal plain meaning that was there in, in uh, the Old Testament text. This is something that goes beyond uh, that, but it does not go in exclusion to it. And the next caution is, we need to be sort of careful here, folks. Uh, it's one thing for the author of, inspired author of a New Testament text to tell us, you know, Christ was the rock. I wouldn't go around making too many of those conclusions on your own. What we need to do is to recognize the ones that have been made and, and, and seek to understand those. But be careful that we're not going out on, and you know me, I, I can get really far out there in that old exegetical limb, but be careful that you're not seeing things that maybe aren't years to see. Okay, now let's look at, at, at these verses, uh, verses 5 through 14, that are the documentation of the point that Christ is superior to the angels. And I, I'm going to admit to you, I, I've been working through the commentaries trying to figure out who I will set aside and who I will read. Guthrie's in my number one slot right now. Um, 
George H. Guthrie, and and uh, it's a very very fine commentary. And so I'm following uh, his assessment of these uh, as I go through these points. So you see, these the four uh, major points are the son's unique relationship to the father in verse five, the inferior position of the angels in verses six and seven, the eternality of the son in verses eight through twelve and the son's position in contrast with the angels in verse 13 and 14. So let's take a look at those one by one, if we can, for a minute. The son's unique relationship to the father. I've picked that label, the son of God and the sons of God, because the the sons of God is a label for the angels. But there is a world of difference between the son and the sons of God in the sense of angels. So he, he, in verse 5, cites from two texts, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now, let's go to the second text uh, first, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. That's one of those interesting texts, and it has two layers of meaning. Because when you look at that text, remember, David is wanting to build a temple. And he says, I want to build a house for God. And God's response to him through Nathan is, look, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't need a house from you, but I will build, David, I will build a house that is a dynasty. I will build a house for you. And it will be an everlasting house. So then he talks about that as, as this, this son that will come, uh, that will have an eternal reign, but then we have this little hitch. Because what does it say? And when he sins, I will chasten him. Well, we're back to that literal sense, and you know that David's sons, like David, were bad boys, including Solomon. And so he's talking there in the sense of the literal fulfillment that he will give David seed that will carry on so that ultimately our Lord Jesus Christ will come from the line of David as the promised Messiah. But there's that second level, the eternal throne that is going to be there will not be through Solomon or, or Rehoboam or any of the others until it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is, of course, virgin born and both God and man. And, and so you see this, uh, relationship, father and son. It is not talking, it's not talking about David's relationship to the son. You will be a father and he will be a son. That would be easy. He says, I will be the father and he will be the son. Now, the only way I know to understand that is to say he's not talking about birthing a child, uh, about God birthing a child. He is talking about that day when he says, this day I have begotten you. That is the day in which the son who has been in waiting, so to speak, is now exalted to the throne to reign in the, in the father's stead. So the, the, this expression is speaking about the exaltation and the coronation of the Son uh, after his resurrection and ascension and seating at the right hand of the Father. 
And so that's the way I understand that first expression from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I, I actually avoided the translation I normally use because it says fathered you. And that just sounds too biological to me. But begotten you means I have installed you. I have placed you on the throne as the king. And the point of all of this is no angels ever had that said to him, right? No angels were ever called my son in that sense, nor did they have expectation of being installed on the throne. Oh, by the way, one angel hoped to. He didn't make it. But that was his, I will be like the Most High. That's what he wanted, but it wasn't his place. And he didn't jump that gap. B, the inferior position of the angels. Why is the Son superior to the sons of God? Well, this text says, but when he again says his first, uh, brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And he says of the angels, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So first of all, we say, who is the worshiper and who is the worshipee? <laughs> the lesser worships the greater. Would that not be true? Angels are worshipers, and they worship the sun. That is their role and it is clear that when they bow down, they are expressing their subordination to the Son. And then it says, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. In other words, the angels, and it will be picked up again sort of in the last verse, the angels are servants. They're not masters, they're servants. And so those things tell us about the role of angels as compared with the role of the Son. He is the one who sits on the throne. He is the one who is worshipped. They are those who serve him and worship him. See, the eternality of the Son's reign and relation to the cosmos. There, This text is bigger than just that word eternality, as you can see. There, there is an emphasis on his righteousness uh, upon uh, his creating the, the cosmos and all of that. But let's land on this one point because it's very significant later on in the book of Hebrews. He is eternal. He is the one who created all of the cosmos. So angels are created beings. They have, as it were, some kind of lifespan. Uh of sorts. I'm not saying they get old and die off. Uh, I've never seen a senile angel, but 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 they they pass. They're creatures, and so and so they're not eternal like the one who made them is eternal. Now that's a very significant thing when you think about the promises of our Lord and His high priestly ministry. Remember, He will the writing will say later on that, that they had many high priests. Why? Because they died. And so you had to have a new replacement. But with the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, he never dies. He never needs a replacement. There's never a change in administration. 
He's always there. So the eternality of our Lord is huge in terms of his ability to fulfill his ministry and his work for the saints. The creator, our Lord Jesus, founded the earth. But that earth, as, 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 as much as permanent as it looks, it's going to pass. But not the creator. He is eternal. They are creatures and are not. D, the son's position contrasted with the angels. Now, I've said there's only one text cited, Psalm 110, but it's sort of indicated as the bracket at the end of this section before the, uh, before the author gets to his application. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? What angels are sitting at the right hand exalted by the Father? None. No angel has the position or the place that our Lord Jesus Christ does. They are vastly inferior. They're great, powerful creatures. But in comparison to the Son, then, then they're vastly subordinate and inferior. And it says, they are servants of the saints. You notice that? Their job is to minister to those who will inherit salvation. There are servants in one sense. So surely you can see that is not the high position of the Son. Let's talk about some applications. Why is the author so interested in angels? <laughs> and many people here will, will go to Colossians and they'll talk, uh, chapter 2, and they'll talk about those who worship angels and so on, and, and some will talk about uh, incipient Gnosticism and, and whatever. I have to tell you that, that there are excesses. There have been in the past, and there certainly are today. There, there are obsessions, and there are many distortions with respect to angels, and there are many who have an unhealthy uh, affinity or attraction to angels. We need to be alert to that. And in a secondary way, this text applies to that. Because it's saying, why would you, even at their best, why would you go second class and be worshiping angels when indeed you have the Son uh, with whom you may, to whom you may draw near? But it seems to me what he's doing is he's presenting angels in their most positive light. In other words, think through the Old Testament, think through the book of Acts and the New Testament, think of the role that angels have played. This, these are all proper functions of angels, proper tasks. So when you think of angels in that light as being guardians of God's people, sometimes being the source of guidance or revelation, and as he's going to see in chapter 2, when he talks about that word that was spoken through angels, so it is understood that when the law was given, there was an angelic involvement in that. He's taking angels at their very best, free from the distortions of that day or ours, and he's saying, even at their best, angels are vastly inferior to the Son of God. So it seems to me he's just saying, put this in perspective. Now, why angels? As I see it, angels are a benchmark. That is, it is as, it is as high as you can go in terms of a line of comparison, 
You could, of course, compare the Lord Jesus to us, but that's kind of a poor comparison. Would you not agree? So that doesn't last long. But here are the angels with, with their certain amount of majesty and power and authority and whatever. It's as high as you can go. And so what the author is saying is, here's this benchmark of the angels. Now, when you look at the Lord Jesus, he is vastly higher than the angels. But, but that's only the starting of his point. After he gets through with his exhortation in 2, 1 through 4, now he says, he who is higher than the angels becomes lower than the angels. And so the great wonder is the one who is so vastly superior to angels, why would he possibly stoop to becoming lower than the angels? And it is because he must identify with men in order to save men. So that's the whole theme of chapters 1 and 2. Higher than the angels, chapter 1. Lower than the angels for a time, chapter 2, but exalted back to the hand right hand of the Father. The author's conclusion is, listen up. If God has spoken through the Son, the Son who is vastly superior to the angels, then he is the one who speaks with authority and he is the one to whom we ought to listen and not drift away. That comes next week. Let's talk about some of the doctrines that are contained in our text. In in the history of the church, uh, the texts we're dealing with in chapter 1 were critical in terms of the doctrines of Christ and in particular the doctrine of the Trinity. Is he fully God? There's, I don't think there's any chapter in, in the Bible that more emphatically states that Jesus Christ was God than Hebrews chapter 1. Now, other places do it, but I don't think they do it with the, with the density and the concentration that this text does. Um, and and so we see the, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, and a proper view of angels. Then I say, what we've what the author has done to this point is create almost a dilemma because he's elevated Christ so high that it's like people saying, well, all you've done is just created a bigger and bigger gap between men and God. How can I relate to one like that? And the answer is, just as it was God who took the initiative to speak to us in the Son, it is God who takes the initiative to take on human flesh in the Son. So he adds to his undiminished deity, perfect humanity, and identifies with sinful men in order to bring about their salvation. So that dilemma is solved in chapter 2. But it's created, so to speak. The tension is there in chapter 1. Okay, the author's use of the Old Testament scriptures should be instructive for us. If this is the way New Testament writers understood, interpreted, and applied the Old Testament, do you not think that that says something to us about how we ought to deal with the Old Testament? I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. We ought to follow their example. One, we should be able to see more correspondence between the new and the old. Now, that will happen in various ways, but let me suggest to you that the vast, a, a, a vast amount of application for New Testament Christians, from the Old Testament especially, but from the New as well, comes by way of correspondence. Now, there are things like flee immorality, thou shalt not steal. I mean, you don't need, you know, you don't need some revelation about that. If you can't get that point, folks. 
<laughs> you can't realize that's a no-no, then, hey, you're in trouble. But very often, uh, you will find that there, there, there is a correspondence. And, and, for example, when Paul starts talking about paying those who minister the word, and, and he says, don't muzzle the ox, there is a correspondence there. It wasn't, it wasn't said in big, bold letters, but you look there and you say, look, I mean, doesn't it make sense? Here's this poor dumb animal <laughs> around, you know, stomping on the, on the grain and whatever. And, you know, so he takes mouthful every once in a while. Shouldn't he? And then there's preachers like that oxen, you know, I mean, shouldn't they get a bite to eat once in a while? Well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Correspondence. I remember when we were living in Plano after we graduated and we were talking about looking for a house. And my dad said to me, uh, you know, maybe you ought to figure out where you're going to minister first. And I was reading through Proverbs and it says, you know, first establish your fields, then build your house. And all of a sudden, that correspondence came to me and said, you know what? I mean, you got to plant those fields because if, if you're working on your house and there's no fields, there's no crops. You're in trouble. So get first things first. You get that down right, then you do that. It isn't direct, but it's application. And as God opens our eyes to Scripture, we ought to see more and more. You know what? I think that says something to me. And it isn't in big red letters that's a direct application but it's a correspondence that we probably should note. Two, we should be able to see deeper meanings of Scripture. I think when you look, for example, at Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul is saying God has given to him as an apostle the, 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 the privilege of making known that God is bringing together Jews and Gentiles and bringing together this church so that Christ is being exalted and that all of history has been moving in that direction. All of that stuff, or much of that, was there in the Old Testament, but it wasn't seen. And so you'll see in Romans chapter 9 or Romans chapter 10 or 11, Paul will bing through these quotations and all of a sudden you say, well, it really is no surprise that God was creating the church. It's just that we didn't get it until after Christ. So... There are deeper meanings that once the scriptures bring those out to us, we ought to see the scriptures in a deeper, more comprehensive way. And that's what he's challenging his readers to do with regard to Melchizedek. All right. Now you ought to see things differently. You ought to see things more deeply. So dig into the meat. Thirdly, we should seek, seek to see more of Jesus in the Old Testament. I remember Dr. Walkey back in seminary days. One of the brightest guys, men, I have ever seen. He never understood how dull the rest of us were. He really didn't. But but when it came to the scriptures, he was childlike in his love for the scriptures. And I remember him saying one day, whenever I read the Old Testament, I pray, Father, help me see Jesus. Help me see Jesus. It seems to me that the book of Hebrews ought to revolutionize our study of the Old Testament. Should it not? I mean, when you see from Hebrew's point of view and you start seeing Jesus here and there and everywhere, you're saying, oh, my goodness. What that says to us is we ought to see more of Jesus in the Old Testament. And lest you think the New Testament is exempt, if we're not seeing Jesus in the New Testament, we're seeing it wrong because it's all about Jesus. If we're not seeing Jesus in our sermons, then something's wrong because it's all about him. 
It's through him that God has spoken fully and finally. So Hebrews says to us, man, you just got to see more of Jesus. It's there. It's there. If you work to see it. There may be somebody here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. It's all about Jesus. It wasn't the Old Testament. It's just looking forward to him. The New Testament is saying he's come. He's the one who took on human flesh. He bore our sins. He was crucified. He was buried and he raised, was raised again. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the one who offers us salvation. He is the one who will serve as our high priest, who will minister to us. He is the one to whom we are to draw near. And I guess I would say this. The first step to drawing near is acknowledging your sin and trusting in Jesus as the way to heaven. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for this author and the way that he points us to Jesus. Help us in our study of Hebrews to see more of him. Help us in our study of the scriptures to see more of him. For he is the one who is central to everything that we believe and need. In Jesus' name, amen.